Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and we're very pleased to welcome you today to a Hill briefing where we're going to be talking about uh, the Constitution. Um, I guess one of the reasons why I, I thought it was pretty important to, to do a Hill briefing on, on the Constitution is, uh, as some of you may have seen, there's a, a very prominent blogger and uh, columnist over at the Washington Post that, that commented recently on national television that that the uh, Constitution was written, I think he said, uh, about 100 years ago and was very confusing, uh, which was somewhat troubling to hear for someone who, who comments uh, so prevalently on, on public policy. So uh, given that fact, given the fact that, that there's now in the House a, a requirement to list constitutional authority for all bills that are introduced, we thought it very appropriate to bring two constitutional experts, two people who have really championed the the, the Founding Fathers' vision of the Constitution here to Capitol Hill to, to address you all today. Um, before we turn things over to our first speaker, though, let me just mention a couple resources. For those of you who, uh, who read The Hill, Politico, Roll Call, Washington Post regularly, uh, which probably includes all of you, uh, you may have noticed on Tuesday there was a large ad uh, that ran, this is the, in The Hill, uh, that set forth our, uh, our views on, on constitutional principles, uh, specifically on, on three uh, often misunderstood clauses, the general welfare clause, the necessary and proper clause, and, uh, of course, the commerce clause. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, we do have a, a smaller version of that available on the, uh, the registration table uh, that you guys signed up at just outside there. Um, another thing that you'll find on that registration table, something uh, uh, very important, hopefully everybody has, that's a, a, a pocket-sized version of both the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Um, great resource, obviously fits in, in your jacket pocket, your purse, your uh, whatever uh, European carry-all. Uh, however, uh, however you carry on your belongings, uh, we do recommend carrying a, a constitution at all times. I think it's an invaluable source for congressional staffers and members alike. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our first speaker. We're very pleased to have joining us uh, Congressman Scott Garrett, uh, congressman from uh, the great state of New Jersey. Uh, he is now in his fifth term in the United States Congress. He's a, a champion of a, a number of, of uh, uh, extremely important issues. He's now the, the chairman of the Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Entities uh, in the House Financial Services Committee. He does great work there. He's a member of the Republican Study Committee, where he uh, heads the, the Budget and Spending Task Force. Uh, he's also a senior member of the House Budget Committee. Uh, but he's here today more for his, his work on, on uh, the Constitution and his efforts to, to champion constitutional principles. Uh, in that capacity, he chairs the Congressional Constitution Caucus, and he's also well known for introducing uh, some really innovative uh, and clever bills that, uh, that try to champion concepts like federalism, which I'm sure he'll address. Uh, specifically, I'll just note two of his legislative uh, 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 projects, the, the LEARN Act and the State Act, and what they would do respectively is really put the states in control of uh, education and transportation dollars, move the federal government out of the picture, and let states have more authority. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Congressman Scott Garrett. And uh, thank you for that, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here with you all this morning or this afternoon, whatever time it is. It's been a hectic time for us um, with uh, financial services meeting right now and uh, the role on the, uh, uh, with regard to the RSC budget uh, task force um, and also on the budget committee. We're trying hard to figure out how we actually save that $100 billion that we pledged to the American public and uh, do so for the uh, CR. I'm pleased to be uh, on a panel or a dais here with uh, such esteemed individuals as I have to my right over here. Roger, I look forward to hearing your, your comments and uh, appreciate our work in the past together. And um, so I, when he says that we have these experts and what have you, that we have one expert and then you have one congressman. So anyway, so uh, I appreciate the chance to be here. And so what I'm uh, going to do is speak a little bit about uh, what we've been doing on the Constitution in the past. And, uh, and just in general, you know, it, it, it's pretty exciting, I mean, that we're actually having a forum like this here um, on the Constitution, and that the Constitution has uh, been elevated in the minds of the uh, uh, the public, um, whether it's here in Washington with staff and members of Congress or back at home as well. 
you, you referenced the fact that, that I'm the chair of the Con Congressional Constitution Caucus. because we started that back in 05. Uh, we did it with the idea of saying, can we have a group, since they never had one like this in Congress before, to discuss um, the Constitution here on the Hill and around the country as well, to uh, elevate it and, uh, to, and to educate the, uh, the public on it. For the, first, well, for the first five or six years of that organization, I have to admit, it was a, uh, a fairly small group of just committed members who wanted to raise the important issues. And what we did over those years albeit in a small way, uh, with some, a small number of people. Well, what we do? We hosted uh, discussions, sort of like this, uh, panel discussions where we brought in outside experts. We brought in uh, Supreme Court members and other speakers to talk about it. We went down to the floor. We went down to the floor of the, uh, of the House during the special orders. We did uh, special orders on the floor. The goal there was to try to raise awareness both on specific constitutional issues, such as ones you, you reference here, and also on specific pieces of legislation that were moving it through the House at the time. Now, in the last two years, you've got to admit that there's been a lot more enthusiasm um, about the Constitution, uh, whether it's here or back at home. Um, I always tell a quick little story how uh, at a town hall day, some 12-year-old girl came up to our uh, on our town hall day where we were handing out all our brochures, including the Constitution, and she said, what is that? And I said, it's, uh, it's the Constitution, and she says, wow, that's neat. Can I have one of those? Um, so when you have 12 or 13-year-old girls thinking that the Constitution is neat and that they want to have one, I guess we are going in, um, or guys too, it doesn't have to be 12-year-old um, girls that are interested in it. Um, we've also been able to work with outside groups uh, in, our, in the caucus, whether it's the Kirby Center or Constituting America or the Federalist Society or uh, Constitution Congress. There are just a few of the organizations, and of course Cato uh, as well, that we've been working with over the years to try to uh, build the interest and build the uh, momentum. And as I say, the momentum is not just here on the Hill, it's outside as well, speaking to uh, school groups, Tea Party groups, and everyday Americans uh, with regard to the Constitution. You know, you talk about the Constitution, the, 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 uh, actually handing out the Constitutions, we can't keep up with the, uh, the, the supply of pocket Constitutions that um, we hand out now. So it is an uh, elevated topic. The AP recently did a poll um, in 07 as far as the Constitution is concerned. And I guess this is more the ha I'm always the more the glass half full than the half empty um, analysis. Their poll is they asked the American public with regard to the Constitution, um, were asked which of these statements come closest to your, your, your view. And I guess I should do this poll here. Um, the United States Constitution versus A. The United States Constitution is an, an enduring document that remains relevant today. That's your first choice. Or the United States Constitution is an outdated document that needs to be modernized. How many with the A category? How many people needs to be modernized? I'll be look sternly at those group. Okay, good. The, um, the result, and how many people just don't know? I, I guess that's the majority? Okay. Um, the results for the American public, you'll be interesting to know, is that 74%, three quarters of the American public believe that the document is an enduring document that remains relevant today. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the other 25 think, but we always know their group is out there. So what I want to do right now is to run down uh, three things. I want to talk about some of my legislative ideas. You talked about some of them as far as trying to return the power to the uh, states, the localities, to the citizens. Secondly, talk about some of the new constitutional authority requirements that are going through the House and the new rules. Finally, talk about the uh, Constitution Caucus and some of our activities for the 112th Congress and some of my suggestions to you have could do. So on the legislation front, Let's take a look at the first one is the, uh, you referenced two of these. On the legislative front, one of the bills I've had in for a few years now is the LEARN Act, which stands for Local Education Authority Returns Now. This is a bill that you may have heard me talk about in the past. Uh, we're still plugging away at it. This is a bill that I would bring up when uh, President Bush was in the White House, even though he was the, his, one of his seminal issues was No Child Left Behind, um, which is an expansion, if you will, of the federal government in the area of education. Um, in an area that the federal government, in my estimation, has no appropriate constitutional authority to be in, but I would still bring it up to him and uh, suggest my LEARN Act. In short, what the LEARN Act does is to say that a state can decide to opt out of uh, the uh, No Child Left Behind or any other variation of it under the Elementary Secondary Education Act, and the state can opt out of it which a state could do right now, but of course if a state opts out of it right now, what happens to their money? 
it stays here in Washington. Under the LEARN Act, the money that, say, Utah would opt out of, the money that would they normally get from educational dollars will return to actually the citizens of those states. Um, and then that state would be free to then uh, tax those citizens for their own educational purposes or what have you, but Washington would be out of the play whatsoever as far as control for educational requirements in that state. The second bill uh, sort of falls along the same lines. It's the State Act, and we're good at acronyms in our office, so the State Act stands for the Surface Transportation and Taxation Equity Act. And so like the LEARN Act, this would allow a state if it chooses to, to opt out of the federal programs entirely with regard to transportation. And it's a little cleaner with the, with the State Act, <clears throat> excuse me, with the State Act uh, with regard to transportation. Why? Because with transportation, the dollars go through the gasoline tax. So if you're in the state of New Jersey and you pay 18 cents at the pump all the time for transportation, uh, for transportation tax, that would no longer go to Washington. It would all stay uh, just about all stay in the, in the state of New Jersey, in the coffers of Trenton, our state capital, and they would have the opportunity to decide unilaterally how their transportation dollars um, would be uh, orchestrated and run. Um, the bills are important on two levels. One is it rolls back basically the unconstitutional nature of the federal government being involved in transportation um, or education actions. And secondly, it eliminates the unfair distribution of those dollars. Of course, right now, whether it's education or transportation, you're talking about the same thing. You're talking about picking winners and losers. You're talking about having donor states and donee states. I come from New Jersey. New Jersey is a donor state. So we're basically doing a redistribution of wealth in both of those pieces of, pieces of, um, of funding, and these bills would undo that um, aspect of it. Third piece of legislation, which is brand new to... Um, Actually, no, I had this last year when so Obamacare put in, and I uh, reintroduced it. I was actually the very first member to introduce a bill, um, so the uh, bill number is 21. And, um, and what this does would, is to repeal the unconstitutional individual mandate of Obamacare. Of course, that has now gone through the courts several times. You all know the most recent decision saying that that provision is unconstitutional. Well, if it's unconstitutional, then clearly we should be uh, repealing it as, a, uh, as legislation. You also know we just passed a bill out of the House several weeks ago uh, repealing Obamacare entirety, entirely. Um, what we're doing now, you'll see, I think, over the next weeks and months of the year, is to take portions of the bill through individual pieces of legislation and repeal those segments of it, like the 1099 provision and like. So this is the most fundamental aspect of Obamacare, the, un the primary unconstitutional provision, um, which is the individual mandate. And so already we'll hope to uh, move that as, um, uh, as a seminal piece of legislation going forward. Um, the other aspect that, uh, not legislatively, but rule-wise that we worked on just already this year, you're all familiar with the Pledge with America that the Republicans did, right? In the pledge, they said something good. I'm sure you all, how many people actually read the entire document of Pledge? Whoa! Wait, people actually raised their hand. How many people actually read the Pledge, pledge with America? Okay, one person did, good. Um, so in the pledge, for those people who did not read it except for the young lady in the back row, there was a provision with regard to the Constitution, which I think is phenomenal. Um, it said, we pledge to honor the Constitution as constructed by its framers and honor the original intent of those precepts that have been consistently ignored, particularly the Tenth Amendment, which grants that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So um, I think it's fundamental that they put this in there um, in the pledge. Now, in order to do that, of course, now to implement that, they put in a rule to the House. How many people here are familiar with the new rule to the House that every bill now must have a provision citing a provision to the Constitution? There we go, good. Um, we actually tried to take that... Um, and make it have some teeth to it um, by saying that you can't just get around it by checking off the box and citing the uh, general welfare clause or the necessary and proper clause. Instead, what we said was um, you have to actually cite a specific uh, citation of power under Article 1, Section 8, um, not giving the general welfare clause or the necessary and proper clause as the uh, enumerated power. That, um, those amendments to the rules were not uh, uh, kept by or accepted by... Uh, by the conference, unfortunately. So um, 
one of my charges to you at the end will be uh, with regard to that area. Finally, with regard to going forward with the uh, Constitution Caucus and the 112th Congress, I encourage uh, the members that are here, and I saw some before, and staff here, and encourage members to join the uh, Con Congressional Constitution Caucus to be involved in some of the things that we'll be involved with. The uh, other co-chairs are uh, Rob Bishop, who uh, helped me start, start the uh, organization several years ago, and the gentleman from uh, Indiana, uh, Congressman Stutzman, also is a co-chair of it as well. And uh, we look forward to uh, working together uh, with a now much larger group than we ever had before, around 80-plus members of the uh, um, uh, of the conference, so that's 80 percent, is that's uh, 80 members, that's about 20 percent of the entire uh, conference. So as we do so, let me run down this and then end here. What we'll be engaged in in the uh, months ahead for this Congress or in the caucus are a couple things. One is to engage in uh, floor activity of educating uh, the members and the public as well who watches this with regard to the misunderstanding of the uh, commerce laws and the uh, and the uh, general welfare clause, so some educational programs, if you will, on the floor. Next, we plan to highlight the 18 enumerated powers in the Constitution, which basically lay out the federal government's uh, specific powers that it has. Um, so that'll be all floor activity. The other things we'll be working on is launching a uh, Constitution Caucus website and Facebook page uh, soon, so the American public can become more engaged with us through here in a centralized location. Um, Another aspect, and this comes back to some of the staff in the room, um, and it goes back to the issue I said before as far as um, provision now in the House rules is every provision, every bill must have a citation of the um, Constitution. We're planning to engage with um, outside groups to help train congressional staff on the Constitution, um, just like we require any new member of uh, citizen of the state to become knowledgeable about the Constitution, wouldn't it be great if actually the staff that works up here also is knowledgeable about the Constitution? So one of the things we'll be doing is um, having forums and the like on specific re respects of the Constitution. Uh, let me throw out to conclude then some ideas that you can uh, engage in with us. One is to for you to examine the proposals and legislations that you as staff or offices may be in considering in the days and weeks and months ahead as far as legislation to determine if they fall within the boundaries of the Constitution, in other words, to, in order to determine whether they comply with the new House rules, in order to also to determine whether they comply with the oath that your member has um, sworn to, that is the delegated powers of the federal government. Secondly, um, also to consider whether any piece of legislation that's going through Congress, whether you're the author of or not, um, whether it could or should be handled on the local or state level instead, or what should be within the responsibilities of the American public as individuals, or what should be the responsibilities of the towns, the counties, or the states as opposed to what's going on in Congress. Um, too often here in Congress, any time a problem comes up on the front page of the paper, we believe that Washington has the authority to engage in passing legislation. Um, Clearly, there's no prohibition on us of, with regard to passing bad legislation, but there is clearly a prohibition on us of passing unconstitutional education, uh, at legislation. So I would encourage you to make it a mindset to examine all legislation that is about to be voted upon or you're engaged in writing to whether they meet those two precepts. And with that, um, I end as I began, optimistic as we begin the 112th Congress that we have a, a explosive growth in the interest of the Constitution, and I'm encouraged by the number of people that come out to a uh, forum such as this to learn more from uh, true experts on the uh, Constitution, so that at the end of the day, whether you're a staff or a member, um, you can say that uh, we have lived by and we have abided by the oath of upholding the Constitution of the United States, and that's why we're all here. So thank you so very much for your kind attention. I look forward to uh, your questions later. Thank you so much, Congressman. Uh, next up, we're very pleased to have uh, Dr. Roger Pallon join us. Uh, Roger is the Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. He is also the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies and the, the Director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He's a man of many titles. Um, he actually, I should also note, he founded the, the Center of Constitutional Studies, uh, which I think has been a driving force for, for elevating the, the level of constitutional debate in this country. At Cato, he also publishes the Cato Supreme Court Review, 
and is an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University through the Fund for American Studies. He's received a number of awards, including um, uh, the I'm sorry, the Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in his writing on the U.S. Constitution. Uh, that was awarded by the uh, Bicentennial Commission. And he was awarded by Columbia University School of General Studies uh, the Alumni Medal of Distinction. Um, he holds a BA, in, uh, a BA from Columbia University, an MA and a PhD from the University of Chicago, and, the, and a JD from the George Washington University School of Law. I should also note I, I held up the Constitution, the Cato Pocket Constitution, earlier, and I mentioned that it includes both the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Actually, I should note the preface was writ written by Roger Pallon. He didn't write the Declaration or the Constitution. He was <laughs> so a little too young for that. But uh, he did write an excellent preface that one member of Congress uh, actually once told me was the best constitutional essay that he ever read. So when you're reading the Declaration and Constitution, be sure to check out his, uh, his essay as well. Dr. Pallon. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brandon. Actually, my son, when he was about four, did ask me, Daddy, did you write We the People? How could I disappoint him? Um, in any event, uh, it's great to be here, and I want to welcome all of you here. And I'm, too, am especially honored to be on the same uh, panel with um, uh, Congressman Garrett. Uh, he has done yeoman's work in trying to restore limited constitutional government. He and I were... Uh, discussing these issues a few years ago when things looked much bleaker than they do in the 112th Congress. So I share his optimism. Uh, it seems to me that after the Tea Party of the past two years, in which the signs read, give us back our Constitution, and even more important, the sign that said, we want less. Uh, that is a, an encouraging sign, and uh, I think we may be uh, at the very beginning of uh, of this effort. In fact, um, I'm going to pick up on some of the themes that Congressman Garrett has talked about and, and go into them in a little more detail, but it will still be only an outline. If you want to uh, uh, read about these issues in a little more detail, outside on the table is the Wall Street Journal piece that I published uh, on the, uh, the 4th of January, which was uh, the day before the Congress read for the first time in our history the Constitution on the floor of the House. It was a, really a remarkable uh, uh, event. Uh, and that uh, Wall Street Journal piece goes into some of this in greater detail. The uh, other piece that's out there, uh, which is published by the American Institute for Economic Research, is testimony I gave before Tom Coburn's, one of his subcommittees, uh, back in 2005. Uh, and it's called um, the United States Constitution from Limited Government to Leviathan. And this goes into much greater detail about some of the, the issues that I'm only going to mention here. Uh, and, and as Brandon said, we do have the ad, and I'll turn to that. Uh, toward the end by way of drawing together some of this. Uh, but I've only got 15 or 20 minutes, he tells me, to talk about a great deal, so I'm going to speak quickly. So um, put on your roller skates and uh, listen quickly. Um, the... Um, uh, most of you I know is from the from the uh, guest list uh, are staffers here uh, for one congressman or one committee or another, and so that means that you spend your time dealing with such uh, mundane issues, if I may, as budget, uh, defense, education, energy, and so on and so forth. And not often do you come up for air and look at the bigger picture. And so what I'm going to try to do is give you some sense of that bigger picture, so that when you talk about these more specific issues, you'll have something of a framework to put them in. Um, in fact, uh, in the hearings that Tom Coburn uh, held back in 2005, uh, the invitation letter said uh, we want to find out whether what we're doing here in Congress has any constitutional authority for it. Well, it, fall, it fell to me to say, uh, sorry, uh, senators, but most of what you're doing is uh, unconstitutional because there is no authority under the Constitution properly understood for, for doing so, which, of course, was exactly what Tom Colbert wanted to hear. But in any event, um, to say that means that I, I stand and Coburn and uh, Congressman Garrett uh, and others uh, do, um, even though they often cannot say it precisely for political reasons, at least at this point in time, uh, stand opposed to uh, a view 
uh, that is the modern view of the Constitution. And in fact, we saw it uh, with Larry Tribe's piece in the uh, New York Times two days ago, uh, dismissing the two cases that have come down uh, arguing that um, the two decisions arguing that Obamacare is unconstitutional. And he said, no, this is an open and shut case, the constitutionality of it. This is coming from the horse's mouth of someone who has been in the forefront of giving us the modern view of the Constitution. Um, and so, and even today in the New York Times, we find an editorial attacking Randy Barnett, a, a one of the uh, one of the adjunct scholars at the Cato Institute, who testified last week on Obamacare, arguing for its unconstitutionality. The Times attacks him uh, uh, quite uh, straightforwardly in this morning's New York Times. Well. Um, what, uh, what we really haven't come to grips with yet, and that is the New Deal constitutional revolution and the absurdities to which it leads. Uh, James Madison, who was the principal author of the Constitution and therefore who presumably knew what he was talking about, said in Federalist 45 that the powers of the new government shall be few and defined. Well, no one in this room, I dare say, believes that the powers of the federal government today are few and defined. And so the big question is, how did we go from that state of affairs where they wrote a Constitution to give the federal government more power than it had under the Articles of Confederation, but not any Anything like what we see today. Indeed, you can think of that period as this. The Federalist Papers were written in opposition to the Anti-Federalist Papers, which had just started coming out. And what Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay were doing in the Federalist Papers were answering the objection that this gives the federal government too much power under this new constitution. No, it doesn't, said Madison, Hamilton, and Jay. Look at the document. Here are all the checks and balances we've put in it. So you had two schools of thought. You had the limited government folks, the federalists, and you had the even more limited government folks, the anti-federalists. In other words, there was not a big government person among them. Even Hamilton was not, when you look at him closely a big government person, though he was certainly more uh, of an expansive government person than, say, Jefferson or, uh, or Madison were. But nonetheless, this is the way we started out yet today, after the New Deal revolution. We have essentially unlimited government. And you look at an essay like Larry Tribe's two days ago or the editorial this morning in the Washington Times, and you come away saying, well, is there anything government cannot do? And the answer is no. There's nothing government cannot regulate. There's no redistributive, redistributive policy that they cannot engage in. So how did that come about? All right. You can understand the theory of the Constitution and its history, first of all, by looking at the Declaration of Independence, because that's where the framers set forth the philosophy of government that 11 years later they brought to them, to the drafting of the Constitution. And you look at the Declaration and you see we stand in the tradition of natural law, or state of nature theory, coming from John Locke's second treatise, which has its foundations all the way back to antiquity in the Greeks, uh, Aristotle and Plato before him, uh, talking about Socrates. You have it in the, in the, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, skeptics uh, and in, the, uh, in Cicero and Seneca in the Roman tradition. And then you see it in the common law as it evolved through 500 years judge-made law in England, where they developed the theory of rights that Locke would set forth in greater detail in the second treatise, all of which Jefferson drew upon when he wrote the Declaration, and he set forth the moral order first, then the legal and political order that could be derived from that moral order. The moral order started with equality, we're all equal, as defined by our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in this notion of pursuit of happiness, you have a distinction by implication between rights and values, with each of us free to pursue happiness by his own subjective values, provided he respects the objective rights of others to do the same. And so the picture was one essentially of live and let live, and only when he had set that forth, and all rights being reducible, as Locke put it, to property, broadly understood as lives, liberties, and estates, and contract. When you look at that, 
essentially private world with each of us free to plan and live his own life, then you look at the question of where does government come in? It comes in to secure that world by protecting the rights that we all have by nature. And you see that in the declaration that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Thus, government is twice limited. It's limited by its ends to secure our rights and by the means which must be consented to. And that's the vision that they took with them 11 years later when they sat down to draft the Constitution. Madison had before him the fundamental problem, how to create a government at once strong enough to secure our rights and do the few other things that we want it to do, yet not so powerful and extensive as to violate rights in the process. And he did it through the checks and balances that we're all familiar with. He started with the preamble. We the people, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish this constitution. In other words, all power starts with the people. They create the government. They give the government its powers. The government does not give us our rights. We already have our rights. And so there's your key to understanding the theory of legitimacy behind the constitution. It's legitimate insofar as its powers have been granted by the people in the original position through the constitution. It's no more complicated than that. And I'm alluding, of course, to the doctrine of enumerated powers. And we see this in the very first sentence of Article 1, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. If you want to know what those powers are, look at Article 1, Section 8. As Congressman Garrett said, there are only 18 such powers. And then you look at the Tenth Amendment, and you see the theory of enumerated powers, which is the theory of legitimacy, made explicit. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. Now, you also have numerous other checks and balances, a bicameral legislature, a unitary executive, an independent judiciary to check the political branches and later on the states. You have periodic elections to fill the offices and so forth. But the main restraint on overwinning government took the form of the doctrine of enumerated powers, and I can state it no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. That's the key to the matter. Just that simple. Now, the Bill of Rights, which we think of today as our main protection against overweening government, and it has come to be that, was an afterthought. It was added two years later. Does that mean we had no rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government? Of course not. We had rights because where there is no power, by definition, there is a right. So it's that idea of limited powers that was the insight, not the idea of rights, but the idea of limited powers, which was the insight of the founding generation. Congress has only a few powers. You look at it, you don't find any power for education, you don't find any power for um, national public radio, all things considered, and so on and so forth. You don't find these because there is, they did not imagine that these were the kinds of things that the federal government would be engaged in. Now, we live more or less under that conception of limited government for about 150 years. It wasn't perfect, to be sure. There was the document's oblique recognition of slavery made necessary in order to secure unity. The framers knew slavery was inconsistent with their founding principles. They wrestled mightily with that issue. They decided, for reasons of unity, to obliquely refer to it and to allow it, hoping that it would wither away in time. It didn't, took a civil war, and finally the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which for the first time provided for state remedies against, federal remedies rather, against state violations of our rights. And so the Civil War Amendments did make a fundamental change in the relationship between the federal government and the states. But it was not an open sesame for the federal government. The powers that were granted under the 14th Amendment to the federal government were simply powers to check the states insofar as the states might be violating our rights, our privileges or immunities as citizens, or the equal protection of the law. And so what you had was an amendment process invoked pursuant to the Constitution to change things, but change them only in the way of expanding freedom, freedom from state oppression, as well as from federal oppression under the original Constitution. What 
brought about the great change? Well, it was the progressive era as instituted by the New Deal court following the infamous court packing scheme. That, in a nutshell, is what it was. The progressive era at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century is what you have to understand if you're going to understand the modern view of the Constitution. The progressives were fundamentally different in their outlook than the founding and subsequent generations. They saw government not as a necessary evil, but as an engine of good, an instrument through which to solve all manner of social and economic problems. They were looking to Europe, Bismarck's social security scheme in Germany. They were looking to British utilitarianism, whereby law was justified not with reference to securing our rights, but rather with reference to whether it provided the greatest good for the greatest number. And so the idea was to use government to solve problems. It was social engineering in a nutshell. But of course, you had that constitution standing there to prevent that kind of uh, exercise of power. And the courts over the early decades of the 20th century, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, did stand athwart the efforts of the progressives. Things came to a head during the New Deal, however, when the court found one program after another of the Roosevelt administration to be unconstitutional. After the landslide election of 1936, Roosevelt in January of 37 unveiled his infamous court packing scheme, his threat to pack the court with six new members of his own choosing when the court didn't uh, see things his way. Well, not even Congress would go along with that. Nevertheless, the court got the message. There was the famous switch in time that saved nine, and it began rewriting the Constitution without benefit of constitutional amendment. And it did it in three main ways. First of all, it eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers in 1937. It took two clauses, the so-called General Welfare Clause and the Commerce Clause, and essentially turned them on their head. Whereas they were meant to be shields against power, the court turned them into swords of power. Then a year later, it bifurcated the Bill of Rights in the Caroline Products case, footnote four. It essentially distinguished two kinds of rights if a law implicated fundamental rights like speech and voting later on, certain personal rights, the court would apply strict scrutiny. If a law implicated economic liberties, property rights, contract rights, etc., the court would essentially look the other way. And so the floodgates were open to the modern regulatory and redistributive state. And then in the early 40s, because the, all this surfeit of legislation was pouring through and Congress could not possibly do the kinds of statutory legislating uh, that would be necessary to spell out the details, it delegated a great deal of this to the new executive branch agencies that it was creating. And so today we have over 300 executive branch agencies which exercise powers of legislation, uh, execution, and uh, judicial uh, power as well. All three powers located in one branch, which has given us the modern executive state. And that's where we are today. And so what's to be done about that? Well, first of all, we are so far down the road that this is not going to be turned around overnight. You've got loads of people who are dependent upon this modern uh, welfare state. All the people who are on Social Security now or are soon to be on, the people who are on Medicare and so on and so forth. But you have to start with the debate, and that's what's the exciting thing about what uh, Congressman Garrett and others are doing with the Constitutional Caucus. They are getting the debate going as they did by reading the Constitution on the first full day of business in the House. And the debate is already going in, in the uh, country at large, but it has to be continued. The Tea Party people are holding small sessions around the country discussing the Constitution. Our Constitution is selling light hotcakes, I'll tell you. All in, we got a notice from someone in San Francisco, of all places, where they can't keep it in stock in some of the stores there. So I don't know whether they understand it out there, but at least they are buying it. In any event, this is the kind of thing that you've got to get going. And what you've got to do when you're here sitting in the Congress is look at a bill under the constitutional uh, citation uh, bill now and try to determine if it is or is not constitutional. And in particular, the three 
fonts of authority that are most normally invoked today are the Commerce Clause, the General Welfare Clause, and the Necessary and Proper Clause. That ad that we had discusses that. There is also out on the table our Handbook for Congress uh, uh, chapter that goes into that in some detail, too. Uh, I was just asked, for example, a, a, a day or two ago by someone here in, on the Hill, a staffer, about he wants to um, introduce a bill to repeal Davis-Bacon. How could that be done? Well, it turns out that Davis-Bacon is is a, a provision, that's that's the uh, setting the wages for federal workers uh, or contractors, uh, is, is, is part of, of a law that is perfectly legitimate for Congress to be engaged in. Congress, after all, uh, uh, contracts for everything from pencils to buildings to ships. And so you have to enter into contracts, and in the course of doing that, you can set wages. You don't have to do it by Davis-Bacon. So there's no problem with something like that. With other unconstitutional bills, you need to simply start with the authority that, uh, that purportedly uh, serves to justify the bill, saying we don't think it does, but in order to bring this uh, measure closer to what the original Constitution was supposed to do, we are introducing this bill to roll back this to roll back that and so forth so there are ways you can do uh, you can do this incrementally as you go along and the reason for doing it is very simple and I'm going to close with a quote that comes from um, this this little volume you'll find it there uh, from a member of the 22nd Congress way back then and he wrote this system of transferring property by legislation, in other words, the kind of redistributive uh, schemes that most of what you do are involved in redistributive schemes, of giving uh, gratuities to individual companies, corporations, and the states, will degrade the states by inducing them to look for bounties to the federal government, will degrade and demoralize the people by making them dependent on the government. What is that but what we have today? Will emasculate the free spirit of the country as soon as the people of ancient Rome were taught to look to the public granaries for support, the decay, the decay of public virtue was instantaneous. And I dare say that's what we have a great deal of today, the decay of public virtue. The kind of deficits and debt that we are imposing on future generations is simply scandalous. It's got to stop, but in order to stop it, we've got to restore the Constitution. Thank you. Thanks so much, Roger. Uh, we do have time for some questions. If you have a question, uh, uh, I call on you. Please uh, speak up because we don't have the benefit of having a microphone for you. And please try to keep your question relatively short so we can get to as many folks as possible. We'll start right here in the front. I, I'm bothered by what I have not heard uh, because what I've heard is a concern about restoring adherence uh, to the Constitution in one regard, and that is the distinction between what is the power of the federal government versus the states. One of the great ongoing problems to which my party, the Republican Party, has perhaps been the worst violent is on the separation of powers between the legislative and the executive. During the uh, Bush administration, it was the Republican Party, and, and before that, that supported line item veto term limits, uh, signing statements, uh, suspension of habeas. Uh, that, that, so I wonder, you know, Congressman Garrett, if you could address what it is that the Constitution uh, caucus that you have has in mind in regard to uh, the ongoing deference by the Congress to the executive uh, as opposed to merely looking at what the federal government can and cannot do. Appreciate that. So um, I may be able to stand up. So this is back room. So that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I can tell you where I where I come from on the, on the whole issue. I mean, I start from the uh, being a legislature, looking inwardly as to what I'm doing and what my house is doing and what the legislative process is doing. And so when we began the process several years ago, and really where we still are to a large extent, is looking at ourselves and what we're doing. And so when I go out, went out to Texas and uh, with Rob Bishop and spoke to the ALEC conference, the conference, ALEC meaning American Legislative Conference, it was council, it was like, well, how can we restore power back to you? So our focus quite candidly has been primarily in this area. 
Um, now you, and I think I mentioned this, Rob also has begun within the RSC, um, a 10th Amendment caucus within the RSC, focusing exclusively, if you will, on that, which might say then opens our um, hands up a little bit ability to spend our other times on these other areas. And so going forward, yes, we would, we would like to explore some of these other, a so, basically a sovereignty issue as to what is the sovereign rights of this House and the legislative branch as opposed to the executive in, in those areas as well. Look forward to uh, any ideas or particular uh, points that you might like to want to send us on, um, but that is part of our agenda for going forward in this term as well. If I could add to that, the um, uh, first of all, I, I expect that neither uh, Congressman Garrett nor I uh, I are here to uh, defend everything that the Bush administration did. Secondly, um, you raise uh, an issue related to the demise of the non-delegation doctrine, which I uh, spoke just uh, mentioned in, toward the end of my remarks, and the phenomenon that we've seen since the 40s was Congress delegating its power legislative power to the executive branch. That way it can have it both ways. It passes a law which speaks of grand ends and fine goals and then leaves it to the bureaucracy to write the specific regulations under that for which they will get criticized. And then the Congress can call these bureaucrats to the hearings and, and, and criticize them for, for what they're doing when what they're doing is really just giving teeth to the grand schemes that have come from Congress. So Congress has, has it's a win-win for Congress both ways. In a nutshell, Congress needs to take responsibility. It is the branch that is charged with writing the laws, not the executive branch. Uh, yes, ma'am. My name is But my problem is that if everything, if you are talking about reform, we must talk about the protection of people first. And I suppose whether there's the social security or whether there's health care, at least there's for the benefit of the general public. The problem now, general public was victimized by a different sector of people which I call a fourth branch, which is overlapped with the three branches, and which victimize all our general population. And so this including all kind of abuse of power, and it's all kind of four and five. And you can see whether that is including what I say is banking bail out, or you're talking about murder, or cut them, identity theft. That's basically is by the network of people, or their contractors, or individual, or personnel. We must identify those problems, protecting those people first. Okay. Okay, I think I get, get you. If I understand, if I understand your question correctly, uh, the the government has been used by one part of the population to benefit itself at the expense of another part of the population. That is the standard redistributionist problem: tyranny of the majority over the minority, and it can take many forms, both ordinary redistribution and regulatory redistribution, and it creates all kinds of dependencies, as I mentioned earlier. So the question is, how do you move from that state of affairs to one that is more consistent with the Constitution? You have to do it in a way that respects the problems that have been created by the unconstitutional measures to begin with. In other words, you have to back out of it more slowly. Our problem here is nothing different from what was faced in Eastern Europe with the demise of communism. It's easy to get into a socialized arrangement. You just seize what is held uh, uh, privately, everything from land to labor. It's very difficult to get out of it because the titles have been lost. It was easier in Eastern Europe, where it was only 40 years, than it was in the Soviet Union, which had been going on for 70 years. We have had 70 years of this in this country. We cannot back out of things, uh, of these various redistribution schemes overnight, as I said. We have to do it methodically with an eye on the ball, but the important thing is to get clear about keeping our eye on the ball as we do it and not to lose ground because we've lost sight of our aim. Any other uh, questions? Uh, yes, sir. My uh, question is kind of 
kind of strategic and tactical rather than anything else. Um, so we need to have the constitutional debate, but we also need to have legislation that incrementally starts taking apart the, the state that we have. Um, to what extent would you focus on one or the other, and how would you split that up among different members? Um, how would you balance both of those priorities, essentially? Go ahead. Well, uh, I guess we've been spending the last several years, albeit in a small way, to deal with the, with the first portion of that, the strategic portion, the education portion, the uh, and what have you. Now we're finally we're at the cusp, I guess, of moving on to the next step. But we'll have to continue with the uh, with the former, um, and that's why I alluded to. Uh, uh, well, I alluded to the, uh, I'll spend 30 seconds on this, I alluded to the uh, work that we were trying to do as far as the House rules that you're familiar with and what have you. We tried also to put a provision in there to say that all staff, for example, would have a requirement of um, education on the uh, Constitution, um, which I would... I would see as a long, if you got that done, would be a long-term strategic uh, objective because over time, people who have absolutely no idea, um, who've never heard a speech like you all just did right now, over time would be um, uh, educated, I don't want to say indoctrinated on it, but educated uh, on the appropriate role for uh, Congress. Um, uh, and, that, and that would have been a good thing. Instead, we had to uh, accept the, the fallback position, we'll do, do a voluntary education program, we'll see how many people actually show up for that when we advise that if they don't show up, we'll put names out there um, who's not showing up. Uh, on the strategic side, on the actual implementation of it, right, so we've had some of the, these pieces of legislation and we have a whole host of other ideas as well, whether it's unemployment insurance and other things as well that we would also think arguably are un unconstitutional that we can do through the uh, legislative process. And now we just have to build the... Um, um, uh, the framework of, of support for them, because none of them will be easy. To, to, you know, to the uh, lady's question and the gentleman who says he, who is a Republican in the front row, it goes along the same line as previously under Democrat administration, they would talk about the, um, what do you call, the uh, individual welfare uh, role that the government has, and we would argue that uh, that is unconstitutional. The um, Republicans already, always were, however, sanguine with the uh, corporate w welfare aspect, which provides for, I think, where you were going down that road as far as um, redistribution just on another nature. We have to unroll both of those, albeit it's going to be a difficult challenge. Yep. This idea of invoking the Constitution uh, in the debate in Congress is novel only in today's world. Uh, there was a time, largely for our first 150 years, in which that was simply uh, part, of the, uh, part of what Congress did. In 1794, uh, a bill was introduced for the relief of uh, refugees fleeing an insurrection in San Domingo to Baltimore and Philadelphia. Uh, Madison rose on the floor of the House to say, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that passage of the, of the Constitution that authorizes us to expend the money of the taxpayers on this humanitarian activity. In other words, he made a constitutional point, and you see this repeatedly in Congress through the 19th century, and you see it also in the part of the executive. In 1887, 100 years after the Constitution was written, President Cleveland was faced with a bill appropriating $10,000 for the relief of farmers in Texas suffering from a drought. He vetoed the bill saying that I can find no authorization for this expenditure under the Constitution. Notice in both cases they were making constitutional points. They weren't saying, well, this is a good idea uh, and therefore I think we should do it. And contrast Cleveland with George W. Bush when he was faced with the McCain-Feingold campaign finance bill. He said, I think this bill is unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway. Well, he took an oath to uphold the Constitution, just like the members of Congress did. Well, lo and behold, of course, the court did find major parts of the McCain-Feingold bill unconstitutional. But that should never even gotten to the court. He should have vetoed it. Before that, it should have never gotten out of Congress. Well, thank you. Uh, looks like we're out of time today. Thanks so much for joining us. And please join me in thanking our, our panel for their remarks.